0: This is Changemakers with Katie Gore, finding the right solutions for the affordable housing community. Welcome back to Changemakers as I conclude my conversation with Daniel Nissenbaum, the Chief Executive Officer of the Low Income Investment Fund. We've been talking about Lyft's role in affordable housing as they've become the largest investors in low-income neighborhoods throughout the United States. And now dan i want to get to one of the other things that i'd like about you guys and what you do so well you really incorporate resident-led development can you share some of those strategies
1: Mm, sure so that's uh that's a big topic i would say a couple of things um one we've been doing this work for a long time and so we're a CDFI, we have a mission, we don't see these transactions as just dollar signs or unit counts, and we're often deep in the same community. So to be clear, we are a financial intermediary, we're making a loan to developers and operators of facilities, and they in turn are serving residents. So I don't want anybody mm-hmm. to think that LIF is a community organizer. It's not what we do. Having said that, for the reasons that I articulated earlier, one of the things, if you really want to be serious about racial equity and be authentic, again, you can't raise capital, (laughs) provide it to a developer, have them build a building, pat yourself on the back and walk away. Um, you You do have to listen to community voice. And I think we're all in the process of discovery around that. What does that look like? What does that mean? That can't really just be... Uh, hey, did the developer check the box and go to a public hearing and get an approval? We all know what local uh, approval boards can be like. We know who is able to show up to those meetings and who's not. And we know whose voice uh, truly gets represented. And frankly, the, you know, obviously the big story is that local residents and and communities of color don't have the same power in their voice. So a couple of things. One is... One of the reasons we decided to do this joint venture with stewards of affordable housing is that they're so unique and they're so important, by the way. I'll make a little editorial comment, we can come back to it. You know, the world of affordable housing is increasingly occupied by private equity uh, that does not have the same long term perspective and does not have the same mission view of this critically needed resource for lower income families. So SAFE is a collection of nonprofit developers who are mission-oriented. The syndicator at uh, National Affordable Housing Trust is one of a few nonprofit syndicators who see their financing and their involvement with these buildings as a long, long-term proposition. It is not just let's let the compliance period go by and the benefit period go by, and then we can raise rents to market or sell the units, which is what we're beginning to see, right? So SAFE has done a tremendous amount of work in and around resident voice, including you know trauma-informed uh, development and thinking about the range of resident services that families need. And that is really just in line with Lyft's core values. So we've always um, understood that housing is important, but we truly, truly have believed, and Nancy Andrews led the industry on this, that the social determinants of health, things like access to healthcare, access to education, access to jobs, um, safe and stable housing for sure. Those are the things which create long-term economic and physical health for residents. And so again, we're in an industry that finances assets and in silos, right? But that's not how families live their lives. That's one of the reasons why we're working so hard on co-locating strategies for affordable housing and early care and education. So at any rate, um, so SAFE is doing a tremendous amount of this work. We want to support them in in this work. And as we think about different projects, we look for those different elements. We are much more drawn to a building that has a community facility, is located near transit, has some impact on, you know, upzoning or increasing density and is safe and affordable for families more than just a random tax credit deal. LIF was with two other uh, groups, Enterprise and NRDC. We were funded to do work about five, six years ago called the Strong Prosperous and Resilient Communities Challenge, SPARK. and essentially it was, uh, we were funded over 20 25 million dollars and then renewed by RWJ Foundation and Balmer and Ford and others to really go figure out what community voice looked like and how development would be different if you started with community voice it was more bottoms up than tops down and that has been an incredible set of learnings and that has we've done that work in 6 cities and we've organized community collaborative tables and it really has led to some fantastic policy changes some really interesting developments you know all a little bit uh, small at the moment but but hopefully they'll scale up and get take up and be transferred to other geographies but it's really around inclusive development and that's a very very powerful thing that we hope to continue so we're we're deep in the work and again we're not engaged with residents directly but we're deciding that that's now an essential component of the work that we're going to do and the deals we're going to fund.
0: You know, the scope of affordable housing has really evolved over the past couple of decades, I'd say, from, you know, when it used to be just solely focused on brick and mortar building type of efforts. And now we've really seen a more holistic affordable housing delivery model. I hear what you're saying, you know, about whether it's co-locating or whether it's trying to blend a model that looks at education and nutritional programs and healthy living or whatever aspect we're talking about here. And our industry has, you know, had to change based upon how we viewed housing instead of just a strictly property management, you know, and build it and be done. And we've realized that people's lives are so closely tied to where they live and how they live. And I think that's what you're saying here. You know, our delivery model has, you know, really tried to be more responsive to several different pieces of the continuum of living, really. Talk us through this co-locating concept that you guys have been bringing some attention to. Yeah.
1: No, that's great. Thanks for that. So a couple of things. This comes out of our strategic plan where, again, we've decided to focus, not to the exclusion of anything else but to focus on affordable housing and on early care and education. Lift has been a leader in the field of early care and education and by that we mean centers for child care and we mean home-based providers of child care because in these two areas given that we centered racial equity we saw those two areas as areas of deepest inequity and growing inequity. And so we've decided to really focus there. Again, we do work in charter schools and other other, uh, types of community facilities as well. So I I really do think it gets back to understanding local communities and understanding what they need. If you go to any community and and survey, people all say the same thing. They want a safe and stable place to live, but they want the things that some people grew up with, but not everybody had the benefit of uh, because... Many communities have been underinvested or disinvested, and so they want safe streets, and they want access to jobs, and they want neighborhood-serving retail, and they want access to healthcare, and they want a library and a park. And as you and I both know, that is not present in um, many of the communities that we want to serve, and many of the communities that are really struggling right now. So, how do you get there? Right? And again, if you know you're a financial institution, there are others doing this work, but what's our role in this whole ecosystem? And our role is to deliver solutions that work for families that are again, are lower income or communities of color. And so you have to really work hard at that and you have to be intentional. There's no program out there right now that's a funding program for uh, early care and education facilities in affordable housing units, but we know the power that that provides. We know the stability that can provide for families to be able to drop their children off in a center that they know that's either in their building or closely nearby, as opposed to taking a drive or a bus in one direction to drop their kids off at the child care center they know or trust or can't afford, and then having to go the other direction (laughs) to get to their job. Um, You know, It is very difficult if these facilities are not readily available. They don't need to be in every... Affordable housing building, but they sure need to be more plentiful. And, uh, you know, if COVID did nothing else, and it did a lot, it certainly exposed the lack of childcare supports that we have for essential workers. I mean, these are essential workers who are supporting essential workers, right? I don't mean to be glib about that. Uh, and this is true up and down the income scale, right? So my point here is simply that we see what our theory of change needs to be. We want to work to support families who need both housing and childcare. For instance, there are other co-location strategies and we have to design the ways to get there. And so right now, for instance, the state of Oregon came to us. They have some special funding. They're very progressive and they've had some special funding to address this issue specifically. And they have a significant amount of funding as do many other local governments, but they're completely overwhelmed, Give it COVID response and other types of things. And so we're helping them design a program and do a pilot around this. We work with an incredible organization called Purpose Built Communities, which is a national nonprofit organization that has a model for bringing together housing, education, and health uh, with a racial equity lens. And um, we're supporting their work through a, a $50 million accelerator fund, we call it. And we're working with them to talk about how to bring childcare facilities into their uh, affordable housing development. So long-winded way of saying the silos don't get you there. The funding streams aren't designed to work together. And so we have to try to break some eggs and lead the way and try to design some models and then try to lift that up that's what we do right we try to design these things that the market doesn't deliver and then we lift them up and try to bring them to state and local and federal government and say this is important let's uh, let's try to introduce this into policy and scale it
0: you know you mentioned transit and mobility and you know how important it is to maximize a community's benefit of those are you seeing specific strategies play out in the industry i mean i know you spoke at a recent conference and moderated a a panel. Um, Do you see any specific strategies or developments that are what you would say are best practices?
1: Hmm. Some, not a lot. Um, I recently joined the board of an organization called Railvolution, (laughs) which is fabulous, and I've been to their conferences, and that was the panel I moderated. And um, I think transit agencies are recognizing, um, you know their public agencies they have a role they understand their developments have not always been inclusive and need to be integrated I, you know you see transit oriented development quote unquote and that simply means you know as rail lines are extended uh, there are development opportunities or there's ways to integrate housing what typically happens however is that uh, you know a subway line or a transit line or something is announced and the lines are drawn, and the maps are determined, and what happens? Like the market steps in, but the market is speculative, and people understand that this land is all of a sudden going to be more valuable, right? And we've seen this time and time again, that either municipalities run lines to wealthier communities and not always underserved communities, or that when they do try to drive lines to be more expansive and to create broader coverage, um, land values go up, um, development is more expensive gentrification occurs and local residents are displaced that's a lot of the work we were focused on in spark uh, but we also um, another time created a fund and um, worked with a transit agency we did this in California with um, the metropolitan transit commission and we've done it in other places to create land banking uh, because that's what you need. If you're going to work, we work hand in hand with local governments to be able to preserve these resources, to um, take precious public dollars, and leverage them to the greatest effect for the public, for the local communities who've been there. So. We do see things like that, and there are some of those corrective measures. And frankly, we've participated in other transit-oriented developments, and there was one I was very excited about, which actually created some uh, again some upzoning. So let's t- said so let's take the housing around this, and let's change the zoning to increase density. That seems logical, right? But the zoning uh, issues and the planning boards and things like that are are often uh, not always interested in that, and we're seeing that that drama play itself out across the country in terms of development that just increases residential segregation. So we see some of that, we're encouraged by that, we're going to continue to finance into that. And I do think, um, you know, with the Biden administration, uh, it's so exciting and so heartening to see the focus on racial equity, to see the focus on CDFIs as solutions providers, not just Treasury supporting CDFIs, but SBA, DOT is thinking about it. HHS, it's really more expansive. So I, 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 I'm hopeful that we can do this. Just imagine if you were able to find an apartment that was near transit and had a child care center, right? That would be it. That's all you need.
0: So you served as the chair of the National Housing Conference and a vice chair of the National Association of Affordable Housing Lenders. And I'm curious, how did you first get involved in the industry?
1: Uh that that just means I've been around for a long time. <laughs> but have been uh, in a
0: lot of different organizations here yeah. um, that have great impact. And so where did it all start?
1: Look, I I strongly endorse board service as a career development opportunity. I got to tell you and I I tell other folks that I talk to about that as well. You know, we all start off in this wonderful industry and we run models or do research, and then we might graduate to managing products, and then we graduate to managing clients, and then we might manage teams and regions, and then we ultimately manage organizations. So, you, you know, we're, we can be so inner focused. I think whatever people can do to expand their sort of sense of the world outside the four walls of their organization and their horizons, um, that's just an incredible thing. And frankly, your exposure you know, increases. Frankly, I've changed jobs, I don't know. I'm teased about this, but I've changed jobs about five times in my career and I've never applied for a job once. It was really through those networks. Listen, I had great managers and leaders who offered me those opportunities. Um, and they were fantastic because our industry is so terrific and we have a lot of people who are dedicated to this work. I have to laugh. I'm going to, this is probably not going to, come out right but there's like that old parable about the frog you know that you put in the warm water and then turn the heat up and frog doesn't really realize what's happening to them so i kind of um i wouldn't say i stumbled into those but i would say you know like anybody else you start on an advisory board or a loan committee or a junior board and then over time you're invited onto the board You serve on a committee, and then maybe you've been around for a while, you serve as vice chair, and they tell you it's no big deal, you know, it's just a vice chair. And then the next thing you know, you succeed to the chair. (laughs) And I think that's kind of how it happened to me a couple of times. But um, in all seriousness, it was a great opportunity to get engaged on the policy side of this work and, you know, to sort of think about the industry issues, not just was on my desk in front of me. Um, I think it gives great perspective on the industry and the pace of change and the urgency of the need. And so, you know, sometimes you're on these boards and you think, gosh, we were all we're talking about this a long time ago, and not much has changed. But change can come. And it, you know, it is through this collective action that you can find on boards, such as um we're trying to do through NAL with the revision of the Community Reinvestment Act. And frankly, National Housing Conference has this incredible new initiative around black home ownership. So great place to meet, great place for this collective action. And it's just a way to uh, really participate more broadly. So it's been fantastic for me and I heartily recommend it to others.
0: Well, Daniel, I really appreciate the time and going over everything that Lyft is doing right now. And you guys definitely have your work cut out, but you guys are making great strides. So thank you for joining me on this podcast.
1: I really appreciate it and thank you very much and uh, appreciate all that you're doing.
0: Thanks for listening to Changemakers with Katie Gore. To find out more about Katie, go to quadel.com. That's q-u-a-d-e-l.com. This has been a production of Forbes Books Radio.